As you've heard already, this morning we're starting a, a new series on the attributes of God. We're going we're gonna to be here three weeks, so it'll take us into June 4th. And then all the, or the rest of June and July, we're going to work through the book of Titus. And then August, we're going to jump really quickly into Micah for three weeks. And then the rest of the fall, we're going to be in Exodus. So today, we're in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. I want us to begin with just a couple of questions that, that maybe we'll get some things turning in our heads. What is your greatest longing in life? What's your greatest longing in life? What do you desire more than anything else? Is it, is it health? Is it the perfect family? A new house? A new job, riches, money, power. What is your greatest longing, your greatest desire? As we, as we begin this new series on the attributes of God, my desire, our desire, is that we would grow in our understanding and knowledge of God, which will hopefully lead us to worship Him. In, in J.I. Packer's Knowing God, just an incredible resource. If you haven't read Knowing God, I would encourage you to grab a hold of that book. J.I. Packer actually begins his book with a, uh, just a sermon quote from Charles Spurgeon. Right? Spurgeon was 19th century preacher. So in the 1800s, this is what he says in one of his sermons. And I think this is helpful as we begin our study on the attributes of God. Spurgeon says, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the, the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God who he calls the Father. This is what we're going to do over the next three weeks. I pray this is what we do every week as we get in the pulpit, right? As we open up the Word of God, for the Word of God reveals who God is. And that's our, that's our longing. These next three weeks, we're going to look at these characteristics, these attributes of who God says He is. Our passage is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Just a couple of verses. And I hope it helps us see who God is and know God. It's helpful for us to, to see the context of Exodus, right? Normally, our, our normal diet of preaching is not just grabbing a couple of verses out of a book of the Bible, right? So, so that is what we're doing the next three weeks. That's what we're doing, but it's not normal. So we have to lay some foundation so that we're not just saying, hey, this is who God is from Exodus 34, 6, and 7 without actually knowing the context of Exodus. And we are going to be preaching through Exodus over 18 weeks in the fall, so we'll, we'll be going through this whole book. But now, what I, what I want to lay out real quick, not going to take a lot of time here, is just where Exodus 34 is found. It's, at the, it's towards the end of Exodus. This, this, this passage falls after God has done some extraordinary things. The people, as the book of Exodus opens up, the book of Exodus, the people are found in bondage in Egypt. They're in slavery to the Egyptians. They're, they're burdened, they're, they're labored, they're working hard, and they cry out to God. God, would you, would you save us? Would you rescue us? 
And in this, God hears their cries. And he speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. And he says, Moses, you're going to go and rescue my people. So really, for the first 10 to 12 chapters, we see Moses being called by God to rescue the people from slavery in Egypt. The people are crying out, and God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the God who redeems, the God who saves. He delivers them from slavery. He parts the Red Sea so that they can walk across. They're in the wilderness, and he provides water and manna for their needs. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And then we arrive at Exodus 32, and the people rebel against God. Moses has gone up on the mountain. They're like, where's Moses, Aaron? Like, we want a God like the gods we served in Egypt. So Aaron decides to craft a God for the people. Y'all know this story, the golden calf. He makes this golden calf, and, and, and Moses is with God on the mountain, and God says, hey, you better get down there. The people have done something terrible. So Moses gets down there. He breaks the tablets that God has written on. And then God decides that he is finished. That he is going to wipe these people out. And he's going to start afresh with Moses. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He intercedes in the midst of their rebellion. He wants God to save. He wants God to be with his people. He wants God, God's name, this is, this is amazing. He wants God's name to be made known among the nations. And he knows if God abandons these people, that God's name will not be made known. So he says, God, you have to make your name known. You have to stay with us. You have to, you have to pour out your presence on us. And that's where Exodus 34 picks up. That's where we are now, and that's where we'll be over the next three weeks. Moses's greatest desire and longing is to know God, is to be in his presence. He wants God. He wants him. And this is what he says in Exodus 33, 15 to 23. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Right, you see, you see the missional thrust there? God, we want you with us so that all peoples will know that we are your people, that we're distinct. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, is God speaking, I will make my, all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my, my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by, by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God protects Moses from seeing his glory. Keep that in mind, right? Keep that in mind. Covers his face so that he isn't killed immediately. 
It was too much for Moses to see. God protects Moses, but then as we move into chapter 34, God is faithful to what he says he's gonna do. And this is what it says. Let's pick up in verse five and we'll read to verse eight. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and worshiped. Exodus 34, verses five through eight. These two verses in verses six and seven are what what one writer calls the character rhythm. And he says that this character rhythm can be seen throughout the whole Old Testament. It's God declaring who he is, his character before us, his attributes before us. And you see, it's found throughout the Old Testament. In Numbers 14, 18, in Psalm 86, 5, and verse 15, in Psalm 103, 8, in Psalm 111, 4, in 112, 4, in 116, 5, in 145, 8. It's found in Joel 2, 13, Jonah 4, 2. Jonah's actually mad at, at, at God because God is who he is and who he says he is. He's like, I knew you were this way. That's why I didn't want to go proclaim the gospel in Nineveh. So I didn't want to go tell them to repent because I knew this is what you would do. Nahum 1.3, Nehemiah 9.17 and 31, and 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9. It's throughout our Old Testament. It's in every part of our Old Testament, right? From the, from the Torah to the writings to the prophets. It's in all of them. It's who God is. Moses says, show me your glory in 33.18. I want to know you, God. I want to know your goodness. I want to see you. And then he worships in 34.8. This is a right response to God revealing himself to us. It's worship. And that's really going to be our big idea for the next three weeks. God reveals himself so we can know him and worship him. We are gonna, we're going to hammer this the next three weeks. Because this is what God desires. He wants us to know him. Church, he, he wants us to know him. He's given us his word. From Genesis to Revelation, he's revealing that he is a a missional God on a mission to save sinners. And that's what he does through his son. Oh, that we would know him and that knowing him would lead to worshiping him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. Lord, may we truly know you. Lord, yes, Many times, in many ways, you've spoken through your prophets, but now you've spoken through your son. God, may we see that today, and may that lead us to worship you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in this passage, Moses says, God, God, would you, would you show me your glory? And he says, yeah, I'll make my, pet, my goodness pass by you. And this is this, it's kind of confusing, right? It's really not about God passing by. It's about what God speaks. It's what he says. It's not his actions, it's his words. And and in these two verses, God God is really preaching a sermon of his divine attributes to Moses. He gives us a definition of who he is. So today we're going to look at these 
first three attributes that God speaks about himself. And, and then next week, Eric's going to preach on God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And then we'll finish up June 4th on his, his just forgiveness. These six attributes. I hope you were able to grab uh, this right here when you came in. This, this is your sermon outline for the next three weeks. So it, it'll be helpful. So if you miss a week, you still know what we're talking about. So I would, I would, I would encourage you to grab it. I encourage you to uh, make notes on it. But as we begin these two verses, God, God says something. He begins with the Lord, the Lord. And if you, if you notice in your Bible, that Lord there is capitalized. L-O-R-D. They're all in caps. This is, this is really God's proper name, Yahweh. Yahweh. We don't really know if that's how it's said or not because it's, it's more of a breath from what we can understand. And there's no, you know, the, um, it's just the consonants in the Hebrew Bible. So we don't, we don't know how it's, how it's pronounced, but for, for ease, we're going to say Yahweh. This is the name God told Moses in Exodus 3.15 to use when he rescued the Israelites. God, God who, am I, who am I to say sent me when I go to Egypt to rescue them? Tell them the, the great I am sent you. I am who I am sent you. This, this name Yahweh means to be. It's, it, it comes from the verb to be or, or I am. Simply put, God is. He is. He is central. He has no beginning. He causes everything. He is. God is. This is the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. He's the God who delivered his people from slave, slavery. He is the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. So you can know where we're going in the sermon. I want you to look at, look at the chart. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiving. That's where we'll be over the next three weeks. So to begin with today, we're going to look at merciful. The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful. This, this is translated in other, um, in other translations as compassionate. A God compassionate and gracious. But this, this idea of mercy, compassion, is God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. The Israelites, this is, this is from uh, one commentary, he says, the Israelites needed a compassionate God. They needed someone to hear their cry of distress when they were groaning under their bondage to Pharaoh or when they were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. And God did hear them. He had compassion on them. He looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So as we go through each attribute, what we want to see is we want to see how this attribute is seen in the Old Testament. And then we're going to go to the New Testament and look at how Jesus exemplified this attribute. And then lastly, in each of these, we're going to see how we're conduits of this attribute to one another and to a watching world. Old Testament, New Testament Jesus, us as conduits. Got it? Should be easy to follow. Where do we see God's mercy on display in the Old Testament? First, he heard the cry of Israel in Egypt. He heard their cry and he delivered them from slavery. He provided for them in the wilderness. Psalm 103, 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isaiah 49, 
Verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Right? This, this makes sense to us, right? No. No, that's, that's not going to happen. But if it does, this is what God says. Even these may forget. Even these may forget. Yet, I will not forget you. God here is, is pictured as a mom that does not forget about her children. Later, he's seen as a, as a, as a mother hen with his, with his wings outstretched, gathering the chicks underneath. This is our God who is merciful and compassionate. Why is he this way? It says in Psalm 103, Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You're with me. I know you. I created you. I am merciful and compassionate. Earlier we sang a song, your mercy is more. Lamentation 3, 22 to 24. The steadfast, of the, Lord the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. He is a merciful and compassionate God. He's merciful and compassionate. Where do we see this in Jesus? Where do we see this attribute in Jesus? Look at Matthew 9, 36 to 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks on the people of Israel and he knows they're lost. He knows they're helpless. They're harassed. They've had shepherds that mistreat them instead of love and care for them. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I care for my flock. He looks on the people with compassion. And then we see what he desires. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why? Because through those laborers, and we'll get to this in a minute, because through those laborers, his mercy and compassion are going to be poured out on the nations. Right? We'll get there in a minute as we're, how we're conduits. Hebrew, or Luke 13, 34, listen to what he says again. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Right? I, I have mercy. I have compassion. I longed to pour this out on you, yet you were not willing. You are not willing. This morning, this morning there may be some sitting among us that aren't willing to receive this mercy and compassion. Take heart in Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, talking about Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Remember, Jesus came on this earth as a human. He was born from a virgin, God with us, so that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make, this is how his mercy and his compassion are poured out on us. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. This morning, I pray that you're willing to receive it. Jesus, the merciful and high priest, laid his life down for you. He took your sin upon his shoulders at the cross. He made propitiation. He was the perfect sacrifice. He extinguished God's wrath so that you, may have, so that you might have life. Your sin can be done away with in Christ. And he is merciful and compassionate. He longs to pour out this gift on you. The call to those who haven't received this mercy is to receive this mercy by turning from your sin. Jesus paid the price for you. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. For Christ did not stay dead. Yes, he was the propitiation for the sins of the people. He died for us. But three days later, he, he was risen from the dead. He was raised by the power of God so that we might have life. I pray this morning that you would repent and turn to Christ. And then verse 18 is truth for you. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, Jesus is a merciful and compassionate Savior. And for the believer in here, if you're struggling with temptation, if you're falling into sin, He is able to help those who are being tempted. He is a kind, a gentle Savior who says, Come to me, <laughs> all who are, are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's His mercy and His compassion poured out on us. This is how Jesus exemplified the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful. So how are we to be a conduit? Now that we've received this mercy, we've received this compassion. Jesus tells us in Luke 6.36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And then listen to 2 Corinthians 3, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Right? He, he's merciful and he's, he's compassionate. Who comforts us in all of our affliction. Yes, Lord, in our affliction, in our heartaches, in our, in our trials. You come to us. You comfort us. Your mercy is there. You're compassionate on us. Why? Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You're a conduit of, of comfort. You're a conduit of mercy, of compassion. That's why we, I mean, that's why we go through affliction. That's what this says. In our afflictions, God comforts, pours out his mercy on us, his compassion on us, so that we are conduits of comfort. 
to others? Have you experienced the death of a loved one? Man, be merciful and compassionate and comforting to those who are going through that right now. Have you gone through heartache? Have you gone through loss? And let us be comforting others in that. This is a beautiful picture of the church. Beautiful picture of how the church works. As we go through things, we have one another to come alongside of us, to comfort us, to pour out mercy and compassion. But this is also a great call for us to be on mission. Oh, that we would be the first our lost friends and family and neighbors run to when they go through trials and afflictions because they see something different in us. They see a spirit of mercy and compassion where we're not, we're not like lifting our, our hands at them. We're not turning our back on them. We're going, yes, yes, I, I want to come and comfort you and love you and care for you just as my Savior has cared for me. Oh, the Lord, the Lord, he is a God who is merciful, but he's also a God who is gracious, gracious, grace, God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. The Israelites needed a gracious God who would treat them better than they deserved. And this is how God treated them all through their journey. With unmerited favor, he rescued them from slavery. He loaded them with treasure. He blessed them with his law. What had the Israelites done to deserve any of this? Nothing. They were saved by grace. So where do we see this in the Old Testament? Well, we read it earlier in Exodus 33, 19. God says, I'll make my goodness pass before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In Psalm 116, verses 5 through 9, Gracious is the Lord, and righteous, our God, is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. God is gracious to save. He's gracious to deal bountifully with us. He's gracious to deliver our soul from death. This is our God. We see this throughout the Old Testament, but we also see this in Jesus. Where do we see it in Jesus? At the very beginning of his life in John 1.14, this is what John tells, tells us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see this? This is who Jesus is. He's the word become flesh. He's dwelt among us. He is Emmanuel. He is the glory of the Father. And he is full of grace and truth. In Romans 5, verses 15 to 17, listen to this language, free gift, grace. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, right, Adam's, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Our sin, his sin, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace 
and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Through Adam, we find death and condemnation. Through Christ, we find a free gift and eternal life. It's grace, grace. It's all it is. In Colossians, oh sorry, how are we, right? How are we conduits of this grace? Well, we are recipients of this grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. By grace you've been saved. Did you deserve it? No. You deserved hell, condemnation, death. That's what our sin deserves. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. We are recipients of grace. By grace you've been saved, church. By grace you've been saved for what purpose? Why? Verse 10 tells us, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God in his great mercy, he has saved us. By grace, you've been saved for a purpose. We are conduits of grace as God's workmanship created to do good works, which God's prepared beforehand. Colossians 4, 6 gets even, even more specific. He talks about our mouths. He says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Right? Grace should overflow out of us. We should be the most gracious people in the world because we know where we once were. Right? We were dead. We were lost. But in Christ, we've been found. We've been made alive by his grace, amazing grace. Now we need to be conduits of this grace. I know I'm moving fast, but you got a cheat sheet, so I I don't feel too bad. Um, So let's keep moving. Not only does God declare that he is gracious and merciful, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He says he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Praise God that he is slow to anger. Praise him that he slowed to anger. This term, it's an interesting term. If you want a, if you want a more thorough like, explanation, go to Bible Project and check out God's character. I can actually put it in, in this week's email. It's amazing. They, they actually break down each of these, and uh, they, they just do a deep dive into each of these attributes. But here, one of the, one of the things they say about slow to anger, yes, it's patient, but it also has this, this idea of long-nosed, right? But don't. Don't think Pinocchio, because that would be lying. But long-nosed, and it's the opposite of short-nosed, right, or hot-nosed, right? So, so this idea of long-nosed, God's patient. He's slow to anger. Those guys at Bible Project, they do a fantastic job of, of breaking this down. I would encourage you to go look at it. But God's patience, his, his slowness to anger, is God's goodness, right? God's goodness in withholding of punishment toward those who sin over a period of time, right? God is patient, to us. He's slow to anger. The Israelites always needed a patient God. They were a bunch of malcontents, always grumbling and complaining. So they needed a God who was slow to anger, who would not give up on them, even when they were hard to love. Even when they were hard to love. So where do we see this in the Old Testament? Where do we see it? Well, he's patient towards Pharaoh. Right? In Exodus 4 to, to 12, we see this. He keeps saying, all right, Moses, take this plague. Go tell him, let my people go. 
If not, I'm going to drop a plague on you. And Pharaoh's like, no, no, no. And, and God just keeps being patient. Yes, he drops these plagues one after the other on Pharaoh, but he keeps giving him chances, right? Let my people go. And then finally, the plague that wipes out all the firstborn children, firstborn sons, right? God is patient towards Pharaoh. He's patient towards the Israelites time and time again, right? He, I mean, he's, the people grumble and complain. It, it seems like every step they take, they're grumbling and complaining at God. Oh, that we were back in Egypt where there was tons of food and meat. Oh, where, there, where water was just everywhere. God's like, you were enslaved and you cried out to me. He's slow to anger. He's patient with them. He provides for them throughout the wilderness journey. God is patient throughout judges. We'll get, we'll get to this in faithfulness as well. But judges, right? Like the people, it's this vicious cycle. The people cry out to God. He delivers them. They sin. They, get, they, they return back or they're, they're captive again. They cry out to God. Well, he delivers them. They sin. They go back into captivity. The cycle continues to happen. And God is patient with them. Why? Because God is seeing something in the future that's going to come. And his name is Jesus. And he's just laying the foundation, laying the work, so that one day... Christ would come. God is slow to anger. Where do we see this attribute in Jesus? We, we, we talked through the book of Mark a few, maybe a year ago. Man, Jesus' patience was constantly on display towards his disciples time and time again. Right? You think about Jesus and Peter. Right? Peter. Peter always is, is just talking and, and saying things. And Jesus, I, I know Jesus is just going, man, like, you know, he tells him, get behind me, Satan, at one point. He says, he says no, Peter, you're actually going to abandon me and you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Right? These are the types of things that, that Jesus is patient towards. And then Jesus actually goes and addresses Peter. He says, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love to feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep, right? Jesus is patient towards his disciples. We also see in Christ's, Christ's death how it has and, and how he has paid the price for redemption. We now see that he's, he's interceding on, by, on our behalf and the Lord is slow, to, he's slow to, to bring his judgment. We're in a waiting time right now. Jesus is going to return, but there's patience while he's interceding on behalf of the nations. In 2 Peter 3, 9 and 15, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, Paul boasts about Jesus' patience. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those, who were, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Right? Perfectly patient with us. Praise God for his patience towards us. And now how can we be conduits of this patience? Well, or his slow to anger. Paul tells us in Colossians 3.12, it's that put off, put on, 
language there? He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Put on patience, church. James 1.19, we all know this one, especially if you have kids. And especially if, yeah, know this, my beloved brothers. Wait, hold on. This is, this is a good one to memorize as you're driving around Charlotte, right? Like, this is a good one. My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, right? Let us be slow to anger. Let us be patient with those around us. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Our God is a countercultural God, and he's calling us to be countercultural people, right? We're to be a people who desire him, who know him. He revealed himself to Moses. He revealed himself to Moses, yet Moses could only see the back of God. Could only see the back of God. 2,000 years ago, God revealed himself through Jesus. Just as God came down on the mountain to speak with Moses, God has sent Jesus to be with us to reveal his glory. Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4, listen to what this says. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus reveals the glory of God and we can see the glory of God in Christ. So today, as recipients of God's mercy, grace, and patience, we're going to spend time after each after each sermon over the next three weeks, corporately praying together. So as we now turn, as we turn to him in prayer to worship him, right? God has revealed himself to us that we may know him and worship him. Let us, let us pray through these things. A God that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Let us, let us thank him for that, praise him for that, worship him for that. But then let us also think on how we're conduits of these things and pray that we would be faithful conduits to, yes, one another, but also to, also to a watching world. And then after a, a, a time of corporate prayer, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. So let's just team up in twos and threes and pray uh, with one another through these three attributes of God.